Sword of Omens, come to my hand. I, Lionel, command it. I also command that you keep listening to Adrian Has Issues. I don't, I maybe, you know what? I don't know this guy. Like, I watch him listen to this somehow. I don't know how. And he's like, you know, nothing about me. And it's actually quite offensive that, like, but I, I guess I'm really on his side. I'm just trying to figure out. I have a feeling that we don't know how far the Michael Bane rabbit hole goes. Because, you know, you mentioned Navy SEALs, you mentioned aliens, um, Mandalorian. Like, we've seen this guy yes. for about over 35 years. I know nothing about him. It is spelled kind of funny. I'm going to look it up now because it is spelled funny. Yeah, send me that. <laughs> I kind of need to see it now. <laughs> it's B-E-I-H-N. It, it says a surname pronounced Bean, B-E-A-N. So it is pronounced Bean. It doesn't say anything about like his family, like where his family's from that I can see. But he looks straight Caucasian. He's He's like a dark blonde. And he's got, he either has like blue or green eyes. Okay. So he's like, he's like white, but like, is he like French white or is he, you know, like Some Welsh or right. is he like German white maybe? I don't know. He's been, well, oh, this is interesting. So there's a film that he was in that it's not a German film, but, or no, it is a German film. So maybe he's German. That would make sense. It does look... You know what? I could ask Ina. I have a girlfriend that she lives in Germany now. She she lives in Berlin. And she's from from Long Island, but she lives there now. I could probably ask her even, like, if she's heard that name. So I totally forgot. He was in Tombstone. Wait. Wait, was he Johnny Ringo? Uh, I believe he was Johnny Ringo. How? I've watched Tombstone at least three times a week for a solid five years because um, remember that scene between Val Kilmer, between Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo when they're in the saloon and they start speaking Latin back and forth to each other and they start showing that like they're a lot more educated than, you know, the typical gross dude in you know that time period. When I first watched it, I was like, this guy looks so familiar, but he had way more um, facial hair than I usually see because he's usually shown like pretty clean shaven, probably because he's always playing military people. But he had like a lot of like more than five o'clock shadow. See, now I'm really embarrassed because at this point, I like I said, that movie was religion in my household. Like we used to quote it constantly. And to the point where even when I have yeah. coughing fits, I still remember that one bit where Val Kimmer is like, because um, he's playing Doc Holliday and he has tuberculosis. And the one guy is like, the, the one cowboy. It's like, what's wrong with Lunger. him? Lunger. is like, well, I hope you die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm just going to go ahead and start the show. Because at that point, I'm like, what else do I not know? <laughs> Hey everybody, you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, the conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. I'm Adrian. And I'm Eileen. Guess who's back? Hey, I'm back. It has been Penny. a minute. Yes, it has. Actually, matter of fact, I think your last appearance was an episode that our current guest was also on. I believe that was the episode about 12 Devils Dancing. Yes. 
which was uh, written by our guest, Erica Schultz, who I could consider her a guest. I would say guest host or co-host, but Erica um, did not enjoy that title. <laughs> no, just because I don't want it diminishing anything that you and Eileen do. No, but would that be, I would think, all the more reason that I think that would be really cool because... Even prior to starting this very podcast, um, you know, we've known each other. And I think we actually spent one of our last shows together trying to figure out exactly how long we knew each other. So it's been a while. It has been. It has. I do have to say that the last show that I was on with Eileen is the show that I think we were talking about, Frangelico. Yes. Yes. Oh, I miss my Frangelico. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had it in a while. But yeah, that was quite a while ago, but I'm excited to have both of you here. The book that we're talking about today is amazing. But before we even get into that, uh, let me actually properly introduce you. Uh, you are a Ringo-nominated comic book writer, editor, letterer, and instructor at the Xavier School. Um, <laughs> she's <laughs> known school, exactly. <laughs> she's known for such titles as Daredevil, Xena, Warrior Princess, the aforementioned 12 Devils Dancing. Matter of fact, her last two appearances on the show were about Forgotten Home. Uh, today, we are talking about a book, The Deadliest Bouquet. Please welcome Erica Schultz. Erica, thank you so much, and also thank you for your patience. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, I've fallen down the Michael Bean rabbit hole, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the Michael Bean. Like, we know. can talk about Michael Bean. <laughs> I'm um, totally okay with that. Only because before we got started, we were talking about Erica's previous appearances, and every episode we talk about at least one kind of like semi-obscure action movie from like either the 80s, the 90s. Um, matter of fact, what was the last time we were talking about The Island? Yes. We talked about The Island. We talked about The A-Team. We, we've talked about um, Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs. And that's where we kind of got on to, to the Michael Bean thing, because we talked about like, we were talking about Michael Bay films, and James Cameron films. And, you know, you look at all these different films that Michael Bean were, was in, you know, because he was in The Rock, which was Michael Bay, right? He was in Aliens and uh, <sighs> Oh, Tombstone. Yes, Tombstone, and everything. So yeah, I mean, uh, but I do believe that he is German just because I've seen, I'm seeing a couple of credits on his IMDb that are like die arscht kind of things. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably German. Your German is excellent. <laughs> Look, if somebody says sprechen Sie Deutsch, I know to say nein. That's, that's, that's what I know. And that's what I know in German. That's my German. Yeah, that works. But that blew my mind because as someone who's watched that movie more times than I can count, I think that's probably right up there with like the first Ninja Turtles in Avengers Infinity War. As like the number of times like I've watched that is ridiculous. And the fact that I've seen his face, there are so many close up shots because the movie has to tell you just how intense he is. So I don't know how I couldn't picture Michael Bay and, and he's Johnny Ringo. He was Doc Holliday's nemesis. Most of the movie is just him and Val Kilmer speaking Latin and twirling their guns or shot glasses at each other. I think it's because so often he plays a military guy. Right. And because he's in the military, he usually has, is close to clean shaven. Whereas in that movie, in Tombstone, he's like literally caked with dirt, like all over his face. And he's got like five o'clock shadow plus. 
So I think that's probably why he wasn't as recognizable. That's so wild. Mind blown. But that is a great movie. Tombstone is a great movie. Val Kilmer had to lose a lot of weight for that movie. He really did look sickly. <laughs> I mean, the makeup job was borderline cartoonish because they really laid on just like, he wasn't just sick. Like he was knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> Yeah, they made they almost like spray painted him with like gesso. Like he was like <laughs> white, white. He was like reflecting sunlight white in that movie. That's so wild. But I think it's also one of his best performances because that was oh, what yeah. pre Batman, I think, or just right around that same time. Mm-hmm. I think it was before Batman. But yeah, I mean, that really he did have a genuinely good performance in that and i think you know it's so funny like the the actors of like the 80s and the 90s that we were talking about before like i almost think that like you look at them now and you're like wow they're terrible actors but back then i mean they really you look let's say like um robert downey jr Mm -hmm. you know he when he was still using he had an oscar nomination for chaplin you saw like now everybody thinks robert downey jr you just think iron man right no, he's an insane actor. Prior, like less than zero. Oh my God. Like that movie was like, first of all, that movie I think is tough to watch. Yeah, it's not an easy watch at all. Yeah, it's not like a feel good movie at all. But like you see like the, the, the I don't want to say the passion, but like the real sort of like um, despair. Mm-hmm. You know, it was crazy, crazy. Yeah, you know, he's always been an excellent actor since way back. I mean, I loved him when he did Ally McBeal. You know, it was just like, yeah, he was, you know, and also just talented musically. And it was just like, it was such a shame when he was off. But it's like his being an addiction, probably one of the best depictions of addiction that I've seen. Definitely. And I think it's because it came from a place of realism. I'm glad he came back. I'm glad they gave him a chance again. Which is baffling to think about considering they pushed hard to keep him from getting that role. Like that was nothing short of a miracle from at least the way they tell the story. I mean, and also we don't know like what really happened. At least I don't. Well, they wanted Tom Cruise for Iron Man. Too, yeah. I think. No. Matter of fact, they even wanted Sam Rockwell, apparently. For Tony Stark? Yeah. Like nothing against Sam Rockwell. I think he's a very good actor, but he's so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of padding. <laughs> Like he really, he kind like he's, and he's like, so everything on him is like such a straight line. Like there's no angles on him. Like you need somebody who at least, you know, like one thing about Robert Downey Jr. was like one of the things that helps him get clean and sober is like he works out and he's like part of, he does like martial arts and all this other stuff. So like he kind of had the physicality for it already. Mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell, you like, I just see him like, you know, dancing on a stage and being a goofball. <laughs> that scene is forever etched in my memory, which is why I love him. Though funny enough, I didn't realize one of his first roles, because I think I'd mentioned uh, the first Ninja Turtles movie, um, that scene where they're, in like the that club with all like the wayward kids with the shredder, he's the guy that's like showing him around and he's like giving kids cigarettes. He is part of the foot clan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's really it's amazing. It's amazing when you look back at somebody's work and an actor's work like all the way back. Like it's pretty amazing. And it's kind of like looking at old photographs. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you sort of remember you know, where you were at that moment kind of thing. 
And I always cringe at old photographs. I mean, I cringe at new photographs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is insane because your picture, I've seen you and you're gorgeous. So I don't know. But that's from an outsider's oh, perspective. Because I know I say the same thing and, you know, you always say quite the opposite. Because there's pictures you take where you're oh, like, yeah. oh, I don't like them. And they're like my favorite ones. Because it's hard to look at yourself like that. I will never look like the cool person. Like, I've been okay with that. That I will never be like the cool kid. But looking back at how hard I tried sometimes to be the cool kid is just so goddamn embarrassing. <laughs> I think we all kind of go do that. I think I'm doing that now because <laughs> I'm fighting against old age. It's just like, yeah, no, now I'm going to be totally down with fashion and all this yeah. stuff because, you know, I got I got to show that I'm still, you know, hip and cool. <laughs> yeah, but by whose standards? I'm still hip. I'm still cool. I'm with it. Tuck, 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 tuck. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you do the Macarena? <laughs> hey, I used to rock the Macarena, okay? <laughs> nice reference, by the way. Uh, yeah, hello. And Vogue. <laughs> but it's funny that we're yeah, talking exactly. about... hello. Robert Downey Jr. We're talking about Michael Bain, and you think about people, and I hate to say it, you know, we almost look at them from, like, this one thing, because you almost don't remember that there was a time where Robert Downey Jr. wasn't getting work. Like, the fact that he was on Ally McBeal... And even though I know you said you liked his performance, yeah. to a lot of people, that was like, oof, you fell. There was still like that thing of if you were a movie star and you did TV, oh, yeah, that was that like, was, no, no, that you was were, good. that was it. You were done. You you rarely went the other direction. But that's wild. Like now he's yeah. he's there. He's made it. Well, yeah. I mean, he really has. Um, I mean, you want to talk about the comeback kid, like that's a hell of a comeback story. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's funny that you said, if you did TV, you kind of like, you know, fell. I was watching an interview with Charlize Theron and she said that when she first started out, Tom Hanks had said to her, like, don't do TV, you know, stay a movie star kind of thing. And like, that was like kind of, you know, an intimidating thing because at the time she was just kind of thinking like, well, I'm going to take whatever job I can get kind of thing, you know? Right. But I think, I think it's interesting that you brought that up the whole Ally McBeal thing. So, yeah. yeah, but there is a segue to everything because we're talking about things that happened in the nineties mm -hmm. and this, the story, the deadliest bouquet is set in 1998. That was a hell of a year. And I was still <laughs> in grade school, but it was a hell of a year. And I was, <laughs> In 1998, I was 21. I was finishing my junior year, going into my senior year in college. 98, I was and I think married. <laughs> there you go. I think I was engaged, actually. I think I was engaged at the time. Yeah. So yeah, in 1998, there was a there was and and Eileen can totally vouch for this. Like there was this weirdness because everybody was worried about Y2K, but we yes. didn't really understand. Oh, I definitely remember that Y2K. Like, we didn't understand it, but we knew that there was something to, like, it was like, you're supposed to be afraid of it, but we can't tell you why, and we can't tell you what it is. Everybody was just afraid of losing their money. That was basically what it came down to. It was yeah. like, I don't want to lose my money. <laughs> and everybody emptied yeah, out their bank accounts. everybody was afraid, like, the banks were going to go crazy kind of thing. Yeah. And there was this, you know, the internet was new and, and, and you know, all this crazy shit. And what I was trying, you know, the story really revolves around you know, these three young women, these three sisters, their relationship with their mom, their relationship to, to each other, they all had kind of a love hate relationship individually with their mother, Jasmine, but then they have a love hate relationship with each other. And, um, 
what happens is these three sisters have to come together. Their mother's murdered and they sort of come together and they're dealing with loss and grief and all the trauma from their childhood all wrapped up into like one terrifyingly stressed ball. And that's where all the drama sort of comes from in this story. But I mean, I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm, you know, living my peak Jersey, 90s Jersey. <laughs> in it, so. I always look like at Jersey and I'm like, yep, she, she went home for this one. <laughs> and it's so yeah. good. Like the vibe, the colors of everything. It's so beautiful. And I could definitely hear a soundtrack in my head. Yes. Looking it over and it was just kind of like, wow, I, I can totally picture there. I could picture being there. <laughs> I know the songs that are playing in the background. There's like some sound garden and like a little, you know, Christina Aguilera stuck in there along with, you know, really, really, really early Britney. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely a uh, Violet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Violet. Ugh. Violet's the fan favorite already. But I, lo- I love the book. You know, it's, you know, the three sisters, Rose, Poppy and Violet. And their mom, I guess she was a Nazi hunter. Yes. So Jasmine's parents were part of the originally when I was going to do the story, I was going to do three story arcs. So I was going to start with Jasmine's parents who were in World War Two in the French resistance. And then after the war ended um, and Jasmine and her brother were born, they were trained to go after the people who fled the Nazis who fled and who got away with it. So that's where Jasmine and her brother were trained. And then the third arc was going to be Jasmine and and the three girls, which is where we are now. I had started and stopped this script multiple times. And there were a lot of different ways that I was trying to approach the story. And I just, I couldn't find the right way to do it. So I brought in James Emmett, who's a fantastic editor. And I literally gave him about probably... 40, 50, maybe even 60 pages worth of work and said, look, I've started and stopped this script more times than I can think. And every single way that I'm trying to tackle this story, I seem to be getting confused or it's just, it's not working. So he sat down and he read everything and he said, okay, take this bit from that and that bit from that and that bit from that. And he said, you know, you're, I know you want to tell the story about the World War II stuff and you want to tell the story about, you know, uh, going all over Europe and South America in, you know, when they're hunting down the Nazis after the war and everything. He's like, but that's not where the real story is. He goes, the real story is these three sisters. These three sisters, their relationship with their mom um, and their relationship to each other. Watching that unfold. And originally, you know, Jasmine wasn't going to die until like the third issue. And he said, you, this is, this is what brings them together. So you got to start, Jasmine dies on page three. He's like, you got to start that. You know, you got to show that this is, Jasmine is, is what's bringing everyone together. Yeah, that's the catalyst. And, um, the catalyst. Thank you. I was like, I can't even think of the word. And what we see, we see flashbacks of Jasmine and training the girls and everything throughout, you know, we see little, little spots here and there, but we don't go down the rabbit hole. And I keep saying, you know, if this does well at the Kickstarter, um, then maybe we'll be able to turn around and say, okay, let's, let's do like a, a short story 
of one of like the missions that Jasmine went on right. when she was younger or, you know, something from, you know, her parents when they were in World War II. And I thought that that would be kind of interesting. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself, I know. <laughs> no, that's very cool, though. That, that's actually very interesting. Something that I think is also interesting coming into this story uh, sometime removed from Forgotten Home, the approach to family and that mm -hmm. dynamic and what that entails. In that story, we're dealing with a whole other world, like, you know. Magic, yeah. But at its core, it's really about the complicated nature of family, both blood and otherwise. And I noticed this is something that you incorporate a lot into your work. I don't know if you wrote them like roughly around the same time, but I don't know, would you say that there's kind of like a underlying message in a lot of your work recently? Um, there is. And, and to be honest, I think that my writing, I mean, I've been very open about talking about this. My dad passed in 2016 and it was like a very tumultuous time because my father and I had a very complex relationship. And I think that my writing has changed since then. The experience that I had when my dad passed away, the experience that I had dealing with his estate and everything. And I actually do get some of that into this, into the deadliest bouquet, because one thing that happens is in the state of New Jersey, if you don't have a will, you automatically have to go to probate, which is a pain in the ass. You know, it, it just complicates things. And there's always something else. Like um, I, I always joke, I always say just qualcosa, which in Italian means there's always something. And that's like the thing is the second that these sisters think that they've, you know, figured something out, another the the other shoe is always dropping. And that's what I felt like when dealing with my dad's estate and all that other stuff. And and you know, one of the sisters, Poppy, Poppy's husband, is a lawyer and he offers to help but because Poppy is so concerned with all the crazy family secrets that they have, she's pushing him away. Right. So even as much as, and this, this happens all the time, you know, you're in such a despair place and people are offering to help and you're shoving them away because, because one, you feel that them offering to help, then therefore you're not assertive enough to do the job yourself. So it makes you feel like crap, but also you're like, I don't want to bring you into this crap. Like, and Poppy has like this whole, um, I mean, each sister has a definitive arc and, and Poppy has this whole, uh, thing where, you know, she left home. She's the middle child. She left home. She moved out to California. She has a husband. She has two children. She wants to leave this crazy ass life behind and just be normal. Right. Um, and when Jasmine, her mother, passes away, she gets sucked back in to the drama, the family dysfunction, to all of the crap that she worked so very hard to leave and to escape. And it's this back and forth that she's sort of fighting with herself of, I want to be here for my sisters, but I don't want to be here for me. Another thing that I did was, and this is, and I'm one of three, I'm the baby of three. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm the baby. Um, it, trust me, it did not mean that I was spoiled. Believe me, I <laughs> yeah, because you don't come off as a, as a, as a, as a youngest, uh, sibling. You come off more as oldest or maybe middle. <laughs> hey. Yeah. I, my, my brother is the oldest. You guys may have met my brother at 
a convention. He usually comes to New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. But my brother is the oldest, and then my sister, and then me. And when I was writing this, there's there's a, a dynamic between three kids mm-hmm. when you have three siblings, and it's this round robin of like changing alliances. So <laughs> yes. if two of them are having an argument then the third is going to sort of assess the situation and align with the one that they think is going to win. <laughs> that will change very, very often. That's amazing. As one of three siblings, I can concur. <laughs> and you understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and the alliances will turn on a dime, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like two against one will then flop to the other two against one. And, and it's just, and it's something that I actually have in the story where, you know, one of the characters says, you know, literally five seconds ago, it was all hugs and now you're jumping on my ass, <laughs> you know? So it really is a, you know, there's a realism to that. There's no magic in this. There's no, you know, there's nothing crazy aside from, you know, a family that was taught at a young age how to kill and how to get away with it. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of this is is very just grounded in emotion. You know, my family was not some like crazy Nazi hunting people or anything like that. <laughs> oh, but oh, well, you know, that was my question. There is... <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, well, I mean, you could consider my grandfather a Nazi hunter because you know he was in the army in World War II and liberated a camp. So I mean, yes, he could be nice. considered a Nazi oh, hunter, but. The idea is like, it, there's, it's just very, it's about grief. It's about loss. It's not just about who you are. It's who you are, who you think you should be, and who you ultimately are going to become. I think everybody has a breaking point, and we're going to see these three women at their breaking point. It's not going to be pretty. And that's something I've been reading it. I really resonated with me. You know, I really got that your relationships that you paint are always so, so real, you know, and it's like that whole dynamic with the siblings and kind of that thing of we love each other, but we hate each other. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, I can totally see being in that situation, the whole dysfunction of it. It's so relatable. Well, you're one of three, right? Yeah. I'm the, I'm the oldest though. I have two younger brothers. Okay, but see, but you, but you get it. Yeah, but you get that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I come from a very large family. My my father is one of nine siblings, so that's a lot of cousins, and I'm the oldest of all of them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and a lot of the families had, um, my cousins were one of two or three kids. A lot of the families, so you saw mm-hmm. a lot of that, and then even the different age, you know, between all of the cousins, you know, you had your different tiers. <laughs> Of age groups. And I've always told you those stories about my cousins. That's pretty much what happened. They were released in installments. Yes. Like it was a <laughs> long running saga of like there was a couple of breaks here and there. They had to kind of rewrite some of it, but <laughs> at some point everybody drank the water <laughs> at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so it was just like kind of seeing that and then also dealing with grief. You know, recently my uncle died of COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, before that, I've lost, you know, a grandmother, two grandfathers, an aunt, and kind of knowing what my mother, you know, and my father uh, went through and their their siblings and kind of going through that whole thing of settling their estate and going through their things. And, you know, it, it really is this really big process. And, you know, those on the outside of the inner family, you really want to kind of help and you want to, you know, you want to be there for them but 
ultimately there are there is that dynamic where they, you kind of close ranks and kind yeah. of want to settle everything you know yourself and do that that grieving together and then at some point you know you add kind of everybody else in so like when my father my grandmother died my father's mother you know he's the oldest of the boys second oldest and of the nine and very stoic and very much kind of leading the family they kind of look to him to kind of you know lead and i remember standing over the grave and you know walking up to him and being like all right i'm going to back up my dad because i'm the o- i'm the oldest in his family mm-hmm. there's also that idea of because there's multiple children there's that thing that is always tough is how do you carry on because i think larger families like yours and mine mm-hmm. who picks up the slack for the family mm-hmm. you know like if there's a case of like a matriarch or patriarch Whoever that may be, if they're gone, then who takes up the mantle? So I'd imagine like... There's a vacuum there. Right. And that's kind of the other dynamic, which I love about this book, is having these sisters deal with that because they have to figure that part out too. And that's the thing, like Rose was the one that she was the oldest. and Rose is the one who stuck around. You know, she ran the flower shop with Jasmine. So it's, you know... And this is something actually that the officers explore. It's like, okay, well, who's who would have gained, you know, because because there's there's still this sort of murder mystery wrapped around this as well. And, you know, the officers are asking, okay, well, who would have gained the most uh, with Jasmine's death? Well, Rose ran the shop, but, you know, all three sisters had an equal stake and it's not like they were they weren't wealthy, you know, they, they were making their payments, but it's, you know, nobody was living in the lap of luxury kind of thing. You know, they were just doing what they were doing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, when I was pitching the idea to everybody, I said, it's basically like law and order meets clueless meets singles kind of, you know, nineties aesthetic, but there's still some like fun kind of kitschy moments, but those are mostly the character beats. But yeah, I mean, there is this this murder mystery that is still sort of looming. And it's not just, you know, a parent died. It's a parent died in a violent way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we have to, you know, figure this out and obviously, you know, deal with cops and, you know, who wants to deal with the cops? No offense exactly. to anybody, but, you know. Hey. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, it's messy enough as it is. Then you have to bring in a whole other scenario because their job well, on paper is to investigate, like you said, who would gain the most from this because, you know, talk about law and order or any of those kind of like procedurals, the first thing you think of, okay, it was clearly one of the family members or someone close that did this. It's not always, you know, a a random act of violence. There's usually motive. So I'd imagine considering the background of the family, that's not something they're going to want to have out publicly that the fact that they're assassins on top of (laughs) you know sisters that you know work around a flower shop so there's that whole point of they don't want to get the law too close because then i'm sure they have a whole lot of things to have to explain exactly and poppy didn't even want her family there you know so much less having the cops there which goes back to the whole close ranks thing that you were talking Mm -hmm. about yeah you really you really do you kind of just you know insulate and they're going to have to deal with the dynamic of you know the age thing, the, you know, who leads in the investigation, who deals with the cop. Well, I guess Violet, you know, she's really good at dealing with people. (laughs) 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 
You know, I I really did resonate with Rose, though. She's my, my chaotic bisexual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's like, all right, which was really cool to see. It's like, all right, she's just kind of hitting on everybody. I'm like, you go, girl. You know, you know, I really related to Rose. But then again, I'm the oldest. So I know, like, I'm that person that, you know, when my parents pass, hopefully not anytime soon, I'm going to be the one that's going to be handling the estate and all of that. So that really kind of struck a nerve with me. But uh, Violet definitely is fun. I think everybody can see a bit of themselves in each of these sisters or sort of a combination of, and you see sort of definitely in the, uh, definitely in the second issue, but, but it starts off in the first issue where you see, you know, Rose sort of taking charge and Violet being this sort of loose cannon and, and Poppy sort of being aloof. But at the same time, you start to see the barriers that these sisters have with each other start to slowly come down. And, you know, it's, it is definitely a very love hate relationship. And, you know, Eileen, you know, being one of three, Mm -hmm. there's sibling rivalry and there's all kinds of, you know, that sort of cauldron of swirling shit that, you know, kids are raised in to top off, you know, having this very sort of unorthodox relationship with your parents and, you know, learning the, you know, basically learning how to be an assassin you know, that's not something that people really think about, you know. Also, I mean, you think about Jasmine herself when she was younger. I mean, the responsibility that she had from her parents, you know, like, this is what you're going to be doing with your life. That's kind of crazy. Like that, that responsibility of, you know, you are responsible for saving these people and for, you know, basically going after these horrible types of people like that's a that's a huge responsibility so the girls sort of each one of the sisters has their own sort of you know animosity toward that responsibility as well and i imagine that you know growing up being trained by their mom they had to practice with each other so now you have that aspect yes. of these kids battle they're basically literally battling each other in certain scenarios, yeah. you know, and kind of having that violent, that physical aspect, even between themselves. And yet somehow is trying to still be a cohesive family unit, still keep the secret of their work or, you know, or their mom's work. Yeah, that's got to be really trippy, you know, especially for kids, you know, then your growing years to have to kind of grow up that quick. You know, you, you see why two took off. One of the things that that we really explore in the story is this idea that like Poppy hates having secrets and, you know, she swears up and down that she doesn't keep anything from her husband, but obviously she does because she's, you know, she hasn't told him everything about her family. Right. And how do you even breach that topic? I know he says like, oh, they're very dysfunctional, but he doesn't really understand understand, how far that goes. He has no idea the the level of dysfunction, you know, like he thinks that, okay, well, you know, maybe it was an abusive family, you know, blah, 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 blah. But his knowledge is just so not where it should be. And there's actually, there's a, um, I was just lettering it the other day. There's a sequence between Rose and Poppy where Rose says, how much does he know? And Poppy says, less than you'd like, but more than I'd like. because you know, Rose is always saying, like, are you embarrassed about us? Like, I understand we didn't have June Cleaver for a mom, but like, is there nothing redeemable about what happened, like about our lives that, you know, you don't want to have anything to do with us kind of thing. 
and and you know trying to find a relationship or trying to find sort of the middle ground to a relationship you can see that between these three women and that's important and you know poppy basically hasn't told her kids about them because there's that back and forth between violet and holly who's poppy's little girl you know she doesn't even know who her auntie violet and auntie rose are right it's not just arm's length that Poppy keeps them at. You know, she keeps, she's literally on the other side of the country. Right. She totally separated herself from everything. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure as a child, you go, the things you go through, you don't want your kids to go through the same thing. So she goes yeah. to the other extreme where she's protecting them to the nth degree, you know, where they really know it, don't know anything and they're completely innocent. And that's the thing is like, they're completely in the dark. So you got to ask yourself like, yes, you're protecting them. But at the same time, at what cost? Like they don't even know where they've come from. Mm -hmm. And how do they deal with things if it comes out? Right. Well, I, the other thing is that, you know, the girls come from a very mixed background. So Jasmine's father was Swedish and Jasmine's mother was uh, half French, half North African. So Dahlia, which is the grandmother. So the girls have this like very sort of like mutt kind of background. So they're like, you know, Jasmine obviously has a darker skin, more Mediterranean uh, skin. Yeah, I noticed that she looked more ethnic. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So, you know, and whereas like if you notice Poppy has a very has a wider nose and the shape of her face, their dad, the dad of the of the three girls was, you know, your typical white dude. Uh, you know, American mutt kind of thing. But these girls have, they're, they're not even able to really reconcile their cultural history or anything else because it's just, you, this is your duty. Right. Like this is, this is who you are. You're not North African. You're not French. You're not Swedish. You're not this, you're this. And you're, you, this is, you're, you're an assassin and this is what you do kind of thing. And, you know, not even being able to sort of explore anything else, I think, is, is, is tough. And I think, you know, Poppy's trying to do the ignorance, and, the ignorance is bliss. But, I mean, you'll, you'll see that she, you know, it's really not the best thing for her marriage. Yeah, that's something that I didn't even take into account when I was reading it, is the cultural aspects of not only just their personal relationship, but even how they deal with it, because I guess that would lead into a whole, that could be a whole other podcast right there. But <laughs> yeah, because like to me, I think of like the whole American experience, how people that came from all these different countries and came here and their culture has been sanitized. And also how they deal yeah. with family issues, because, you know, well, I mean, certain things are universal. Family uh, complications are not necessarily inherently uh exclusive to one culture, but certain things don't necessarily cross over. So I'd imagine there's probably a little bit of that as well. Yeah. And, and they don't, they don't have the, the, like Eileen brought up this idea of like, when something happens, how do you cope with it? They don't really have coping skills. Like they just have like, everything is offensive. Right. All survival. Yeah. Everything. Thank you. Everything is pure survival. And so when something like this happens, what do you do? You know, so they, they don't even have the capacity to cope with their mother's death because all they're thinking about is how, how do I get to the next step? Yeah. They're not dealing with even grieving. It's all kind of like, all right, who do we have? Who's ass do we have to kick and how do we, you know, survive this and 
protect our identities and our past, whatever, from the cops and yet still find out who took out their mom. Yeah. And that's so much of this is, you know, indicative of a lot of things. Um, I'm even taking this outside of, let's say, a, a family issue is that sometimes we don't really give ourselves time to grieve. Mm-hmm. in dealing with like let's say traumatic experiences because and i don't know if this is strictly just like a cultural thing or is that just maybe trying to you know it's it's hard to kind of sit there and deal with all that so sometimes it's easier at least in my experience mm-hmm. i don't want to speak for you know concentrate on the logistics sometimes you don't even realize that you're sidestepping it until there's so much time removed and you look back and you go shit like i never really dealt with this thing yeah and who'd really want to? And no, sh- you know, that's no shade to anybody because that's a lot to handle. But the fact that you even allowed your characters to go through that, that's not something that, you know, you see in a lot of books because you, it's funny, you talk about the next thing because it's always, okay, here's the next set piece. Here's the next uh, line to go through. But you're really watching them just struggle in real time because they're really having to learn how to be sisters again not even again, maybe possibly for the first time. They've never really been able to see each other as sisters. They've always had to see each other as either obstacles or allies. But like with family, it's sort of the ideal of family is this idea of like you're loving your brothers and your sisters um, uh, unconditionally. And, And that's kind of the ideal. But they never had that because they always saw each other as either an obstacle to the survival or someone they had to align themselves with to survive. And, and you just said like, they're learning how to be sisters for the first time. And I think that that's definitely something that is indicative of their relationships. You know, I mean, I'm the first person to say that, you know, my brother and I, I would never consider us close until after my dad died and after my father passed i realized oh my god like i can have a brother and i can have you know a relationship with him because we had a pretty dysfunctional growing up and now that we're adults and we've taken time to process things we can understand the situation that we grew up in, but also be able to make peace with each other and try to love each other. And I think that that's something that's, that I'm trying to put in with these particular, with these three women. Right. And it's funny because the thing about dysfunction, how I, I loved how, okay, Violet walking in and just being like, oh, did somebody die? And I totally... Yeah got that it's that dark humor because that's basically my family you know if somebody died we'd be the first ones joking around and kind of cracking jokes at the funeral and talking about all the you know goofy stuff that happened you know and totally just making fun of the situation in a weird way and you know meant from the outside looking in this seems kind of dark and whatever but i totally got that kind of having having to do that with that situation, you know, it's like you, she comes in and says that and you expect somebody's going to pop off on her and they're just like, oh, my God, you're here. and We love you. And nobody even acknowledged, like, hey, you, you cracked this really horrible joke. <laughs> and it's like, that's totally my family. <laughs> and it's like, you know, there is I, I wrote this like whole blog post when my dad passed about how, you know, it, when he died, I mean, my dad basically, like, he died from a lot of things, but it was, you know, the underlying cause was basically he OD'd. 
and I'm going to laugh about it. And it's horrible that I'm going to laugh about it, but I'm going to laugh about it. But when he died, his mouth was open. So when they brought me into the room and there was this nun and all this other stuff, and I literally, I asked the nun for a quarter and she says, oh, do you want me to get you something from the vending machine? And I said, no, I want to see if I could pitch into his mouth from this side of the room. (laughs) (laughs) And for, now I know that that's a defense mechanism. Like I get that. I, I, I understand where that came from. Like the look on her face of horror (laughs) that I would say something like that. And I'm like, what? (laughs) But to me, I'm. Yeah, (laughs) I get it. But see, that's the thing is you get it. Um, But yeah, don't say that to a nun. (laughs) As someone who went to Catholic school from kindergarten all the way to senior year of high school, um, I could probably compile a list of things not to say to a nun, but that's definitely up there. I don't have that one on my list, so I'm going to have to add that. Thank you. I'm sorry. Nobody beats my grandmother. She was in a nursing home with nuns, and she literally snatched a habit off the freaking nun. Well, see, she got that's mad. just I'm thinking of the nun because not for nothing. No, that's the nuns were getting mad, but she actually just laughed and thought it was funny. I'm like, God bless, because my grandmother is not easy. Oh, no. That just means it was not tight enough because those things do not move. Like... That is They're not like, supposed. To, I thought they were glued on. No, pretty much, and well, they were like those nuns that they look like the flying nun. Like the habits were really <laughs> kind of elaborate that way. So I don't know. My grandmother, like she must have, st- she was still strong at that time. Oh, that nun's uh, habit she, game was not a point, she, and that's her fault. Yeah, she. That's her fault. Really, like she must have <laughs> yanked the crap. <laughs> And my mother was mortified, and it's like, and it's like not even like we're in that same faith, you know. But it was just a thing of, oh my god, like you did that to an uncle. My mother was raised Catholic. My grandmother gave no fucks. There's two <laughs> and things the nun didn't care either. Thank God. There's two things that are pretty much indestructible. It's like vibranium and like nuns' habits. <laughs> well, that one didn't didn't last. Like I said, well, she. Well, then pro- maybe maybe uh maybe the new the new Captain America can get a habit because you know. He, he, the one thing I mean, I love the show, but I do have to say, like, I think I think Falcon needs a helmet. Every Captain America has a helmet. I don't know. You know what? My thing was really weird. I had a thing about like the cheek guards, like the white cheek guards, and it was like I don't know if it was like the fit or something, but I'm like, I know it's very much like the comic but in the mm-hmm. execution i'm like mm, i don't know and then the glasses wrap around the outside of it and it's to me it reminded me of gambit well that's I, well see this is why i can see that yeah. we we're talking about the 90s mm. atlas and i um shout out to atlas um one of my close friends and uh, former co-host back in our old show we used to argue for hours because as someone who grew up in the 90s, you know, it was always like that weird, like, high school wrestling headgear. And, of course, shoulder pads and pouches. Mm, but that headgear, yes. he used to get livid every time he saw it. And I'm like, no, it's cool. And I realized I was on the wrong side of that beef. But I want to point out <laughs> one thing. And, of course, these are all spoilers, so whatever. If you haven't seen it by now, that's your own damn fault. Um, <laughs> someone brought up this amazing point about the Falcon Winter Soldier is Captain America's shield is made out of vibranium. Now, we've seen vibranium work in so many ways in this series. Like, Cap has thrown the shield. It's gotten stuck into a wall. And I always love that part, and it's really nice attention to detail, is when he goes to grab it out of the wall, he literally like does like a, a, a spin, grabbing it and having to pretty much pull with two hands with all of his might, being a super soldier, to pull it out of the wall. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's happened multiple times. We've seen this thing take out Quinjets. We've seen it do all these things. In uh, Winter Soldier, the movie, it got jammed into the side of that van. Yeah. And they almost didn't get it out. So tell me why then Sam Wilson throws this at Batroc and Batroc manages to knock it out of the air with a chair. I I didn't catch that. (laughs) Because that's that's the way it was written in the script. (laughs) Someone pointed it out. And now that I can't unsee it, and that's all I have to say, um, thank you for coming to my um, talk. My TED Talk. (laughs) Yes. I say that all the time. I say that when I when I rant at my students and I'm done, I'm like, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Now do your work. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, there is a Catholic school reference in, in the first issue because I don't know if you noticed, there's a, a flashback and you see Poppy in a Catholic school uniform and she's having a conversation with Jasmine and Jasmine's telling her, you know, sometimes we have to keep secrets. You have to keep your family safe and that means keeping secrets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think like, yes, they do love each other and they keep each other and they defend each other. But they're also like, it's kind of like that thing. Like if somebody says like, oh, your brother's such an asshole or your sister's such an asshole. And you're like, screw you. You can't say that. And it's like, but you say your brother's an asshole all the time. Well, so, I yeah, but say I can that, say, but you can't. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. And like, that's kind of their relationship, you know? So, you know, like Rose and Poppy or Rose and Violet can go literally go to physical blows. But if somebody else tried to do something, yeah, no. then they would be the first person to defend them. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's still a dysfunctional family as all hell. Well, I can say in my family, so we put the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> That's a <my> tagline. <laughs> this is definitely more of like, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of like dark humor in this. Mm-hmm. But knowing the characters and as you see the characters develop, you understand that like, the dark humor comes from like a place of like real trauma and real hurt and that it's their way of coping with everything because they've never really had the opportunity to really sit down and unpack everything. It's always just been, you know, just move on to the next. So what do you do? Well, you laugh about it, even if it's uncomfortable to do so, you know? Right. But before we close out, we definitely want to bump up the creative team. Something that I've always enjoyed about your work is, you know, you always have an eye for talent. And that comes through here. And I don't know if so. Um, I mean, I think you had had a rundown of. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you were the writer and, and literer on here. You know, we mentioned before James Emmett, who was you know, your editor, um, your mm-hmm. interior artist, Carola Borelli, your colorist, Gab Contreras, and your cover mm-hmm. artist, Kevin Wada. Um, that they cover, all did, by the yes. way, it is insane. Kevin's work, and I'm sorry, I know this probably sounds like me gushing, being kind of like a, a fanboy about it. So good. Been a fan for a long time. So when I saw that cover, I'm like, oh, that's definitely Kevin. <laughs> I fangirls just writing the email to him, like asking him if he was available. I'm like, so, you know, um, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I know you're super busy, and this probably won't interest you, but um, I was just wondering your availability to, like, um, and, and, and he, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sweetest person in the world. Oh, this sounds really interesting. I could totally see the aesthetic. <laughs> That's the thing is like everybody always, you know, this is the truth though. And and you, because we know, know each other, mm, like, right. you know that this is true. Like 
I'm basically one of these sisters. Like I'm the angriest, meanest person on the outside, but deep down I am like the squishiest, softest, most loving person on the planet. Erica, that's but, not you know, fair. That's my job. You got to get through a whole <laughs> lot of like barnacles mm-hmm. to get there. Not everybody is, is allowed. <laughs> yep. Uh, oh God, I'm talking to two of you, darling. <laughs> you, you, you have been for years. I don't know how. It... <laughs> this is why you guys get along so well. <laughs> yeah. I hey, was like, you know, he's crust, crusty on the outside and he's all gooey in the inside. <laughs> yeah. Hey, game recognizes game. We recognize, we sm- we can smell our own. Yep. It's got to be a Jersey thing. I don't know. Like, Maybe. I can see that. I said this on another podcast. I, I have been stupid lucky when it comes to collaborators and, you know, with Marika and Matt on Forgotten Home and Natasha Alterici who did the covers and with this book, with Corolla and Gab and James and Kevin, I mean, I, I really have been stupid lucky. Um, and if only that luck could translate to like scratch offs. But, uh, wow. but I mean, we, we're all on the same page. And deep down, basically, like what you want to do is put out the best work possible. You know, ego aside, you want to put the best work possible. And it, when you have collaborators that are totally on the same page, um, it just, it, it really brings out the best work. I mean, and I'm very, very lucky, on, especially on this book, because uh, Corolla and Gab, they're, Gab's colors, like, every person who gets on this book is supposed to be, like, elevating. So, like, Corolla's got incredible line work. Gab's colors just elevate that, you know? And the cover is just, yeah. I, I love the color palette and you really got the moods depending on the yeah. scene. You really got a good vibe for kind of the moods of it. And even just even we were talking off uh, audio, how each of the sisters, they have kind of like their own color and flower coordinated conversation box. So, you know, Poppy has her little Poppy mm-hmm. in, in uh, yellow and Rose has her, you know, red box with the rose and, you know, Violet has her, you know, purple with the, her Violet. And it was such a cool way to kind of, figure out who was talking but in a really simple way where you're not reciting their names over and over again which uh yeah but and it was and they just kind of played well with all the other colors on the page it was a really nice feature but the palettes are beautiful it's a dark scene but it's still weirdly vibrant yeah and that's the thing is like you know we're dealing with dark stuff here we're dealing with death and, and trauma and things like that but we want to show that like the world is still going to go go forward you know mm-hmm. The flower still you know, bloom. the sun is still rising. Mm-hmm. The flower still blooms. Sun's still rising. You know, no matter what you're going through personally or this family is going through, like things are still happening. And I think that that's kind of kind of an interesting side note in terms of like what everything's happening today, like with COVID and everything, you know, like right. everybody's going to go through some stuff. But, you know, the, 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 the world is still spinning. You know what I mean? Like. Until, you know, Magneto swaps the poles. (laughs) (laughs) And said that that's actually happened already. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't talk about that run, but. (laughs) Too funny. Oh, my gosh. Erica, I, I know I say this a lot. I say this probably every episode, but I am not even necessarily just thankful that you're here, but also just fortunate to even be able to kind of pick your brain about this stuff and. And as a book that, you know, obviously we're trying to get out there and get people excited about, but 
you really put so much love into this and even with dealing with so much material that is at times heavy, but it's also beautiful and it also has, I think, a message that people I think can really hold on like grasp and really take. And I think that's something about your work that's always just been great, whether you're doing a superhero book or, you know, a more intimate indie piece. There's still heart to it and there's still like I know it's weird to say about drawn characters, but there's a living, breathing, like, soul in this. Realism is, is so you. deep, you know, and that's something that, you know, is relatable. You know, it's not like you're, you know, one thing I hate is because conversations that are really stilted. And I love when a writer can write a conversation it's like, oh, yeah, I could totally hear me and my family and my girlfriends having that weird conversation or this awkward one thing that somebody says that doesn't really fit in, but somebody <laughs> said it anyway, you know. Yeah, it's, And that's what I love about your work and, and even this was just really how real the conversations sound and it's really very well done. And it's Thank something you. that's very relatable, I think, for a lot of people. And I think everybody's going to find something out of this. And especially now with the world situation, this will help people process a lot of things, I think, that we've had a lot of time to sit home and think about. <laughs> and also it's just really badass yeah. too <laughs> yeah and that's the thing and it, but it's still done in a way where it's not all dark and dreary it's not like you know uh csi new york when it first came out and everything was like gray blue tones and it was just like why new york yeah. is more vibrant than that like stop you know this isn't yeah. that you know so it's like new york, yeah. like come on why is everything like this yeah, yeah it was just like no you know me and miami so like flashy colors and i'm like i've been there it's not that bright no <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you, you have this thing and it's like, all right, you still have that dichotomy between the dark content, but it's still very colorful and vibrant. And you still got something to really catch your eye. And the characters are just, you know, and of course, like Violet, the, the fan favorite, she, she's just fun, you know, because she gives <laughs> no fucks. And that's yeah. something everybody can relate to. You know, either you're that or you want to be that. <laughs> And you guys like always give me a platform and I appreciate that so much, like giving me the time to pull your ear about, you know, the book that I put out and, and, and I really, and I appreciate the time that, that you take to like, look at the book and really consider it and not just like skim over it and stuff, you know? So I, I, I genuinely appreciate that. And I always genuinely enjoy talking to y'all because we always have whether it's a funny conversation or a series of conversation, it's always genuine. It's always sincere. And I, and I think that that's, that's just important just for connection as people, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why we love having you, you know? And one of the things oh. we, that we love about our platform is just really those connections that we make with people on a personal level, on a creative level, you know, and anybody who's a creator, you're putting a piece of yourself into that a piece of your soul goes into everything you create. And we, want to celebrate that and we want to honor that because we know that this is you know it's like having a baby you know and everyone is, <laughs> is your little baby and they're dysfunctional and they drive you crazy and <laughs> you know and you got to keep tweaking them and kind of you know but at the end of the day this is a piece of you and it's something that's to be celebrated and that's kind of what we love about our job is you know we get to kind of take those things and elevate them to the respect that they really deserve because so much work goes into this and even down to, you know, your letterers, your your colorists, your inkers, you know, maybe they're not the first ones that are shouted out when a comic comes out, but they're just as important as everything else because you need all those pieces. Yeah. And shout to out to Flatters. 
<laughs> yes. I always forget. Shout out to Flatters. There it, you go. It, someone had said this before, and it's like, oh, which more Flatters got shouted out? Um, so I'm going to try to do that. So shout out to Flatters. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So, you know, your your team was incredible. The the comic is beautiful. Um, you said coming out May 11th, right? And Kickstarter. May 11th is a Kickstarter, yeah. Right. And it, we're looking to do five issues? Yeah, it's actually going to be an OGN. So all, originally it was going to be five separate issues, but then we decided that we're going to do an OGN. So it's basically, it's 120, it's 120 plus pages, uh, OGN, and uh, it's five chapters. So uh, 110 pages of uh, story content and some extras. I created some really cool uh, 90s style patterns for the end pages and stuff. And we're really excited about it. So yeah, May May eleventh is is the day, and then I will be stressing from May eleventh for <laughs> <Yes>. the next <laughs> thirty days. <laughs> we got you back, girl. We we're right here. Can't wait. Can't Thank wait you. to see the rest of it. Um, you already got me hooked, and I'm so mad that I have to wait. <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I know we have fun interacting with you, but if anybody would like to follow you or anything else, feel free to let any uh, tags out or anywhere else that people can find more of your work. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Erica Schultz 42 on Instagram. I am Erica Schultz writes W R I T E S. Um, my website is Erica Schultz com, And if you go to the shop link, you can pick up all the books that I've worked on. Um, Pretty much everything that I've worked on is also on Comixology if you do digital. Um, and we have a Twitter and an Instagram for Deadliest Bouquet. So on Twitter, it's Deadly underscore Bouquet. And on Instagram, it's the Deadliest Bouquet comic. And uh, the link in the bio takes you to the uh, Kickstarter pre-launch page. So if you click on that to get notified, um, that link will also take you when the uh, page is, uh, when the campaign has launched, the link will take you right there too. And, uh, and yeah, we're just, we're really hoping to make our goal and to be able to get this book in people's hands. The whole team's really done a incredible job. You, you, sh- you absolutely should be proud of it. And they all should be. And, you know, shout out to Corolla, Gab, and Kevin, and James. And your flatter. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever uh, that may be. Flatter's name is, I'm going to, I, I just, I just pulled it up. The flatter's name is Sheffel uh, Peterson. It's C-H-E-F-E-L. So how would you say that? Yeah, Chaffel. Chaffel or Chaffel. Chaffel. Yeah. Well, thank you for stopping by. Thank you, Eileen, for being here. Thank um, you. Even if you're not on mic, you know, you've always been a part of the process. You've always been a part of this team that we've built. Um, you know, especially you and me and Ashley, my co-host and partner on um, our sibling podcast, Talking Like a Teen. And thank you all for listening. This is something that really is a labor of love, much like a lot of creators. You know, like you said so eloquently before, it's something that we really put all our heart and soul into. So anytime anyone listens and gives any sort of feedback, constructively, hopefully, um, you know, that's, that's really important. <laughs> I can't take that away. And matter of fact, I actually should throw out your handles, babe. Um, we got the Latina nerd here, and I'm not even giving her a due. <laughs> Grandpa, I'm your butter peeking, geeking, reeking Latina nerd. <laughs> I have uh, my podcast and blog, The Latina Nerd Experience. You can find me on the AdrianHasIssues.com website. You can find me on Twitter at the Latinerd, on Instagram. Also, as the Latinerd, I always forget my own handle. Hold on one second, because <laughs> you have an underscore on there. I oh, I do have under. Uh, probably yeah, the underscore Latinerd. 
That's L-A-T-I-N-E-R-D, come the Latina nerd. So it's pronounced Latina nerd, not Latin nerd, <laughs> which I get a lot of, but you know. Well, both things can be true. American. <laughs> People could be two things. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I know. I yeah. Hey, I Hold butcher, on. Sorry. <laughs> I butcher my own handle, honestly. It's like. <laughs> We've had, how many languages have we had on? Like at least three or four. We have Italian, German, Spanish. Well, I've come to realize when oh, you're the podcast, well. I realize I'm like, oh gosh, this is a fish. <laughs> so I've had that issue. Um, so for um, my lead and I both, thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Um, and we will see you next issue. Bye.